0: Section 19 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillam. Section 19. November 1st to 25th, 1915. November 1st. "'Last night was very rough, and several lighters were wrecked on the beach. "'We also lost a destroyer, which ran on the rocks just off West Beach. "'No loss of life. "'A cool summer day again, and no shelling from the Turks this morning. "'Flies not quite so bad, but still a plague. "'They have become persistent, fat, sleepy ones now. "'No shelling from the Turks at all, and our artillery hardly fire a shot.' November 2nd. A few shells only this morning. A beautiful summer day, but flies badly worrying. A battery has been put on the road just by the rise before 80th Brigade Headquarters. Destroyer which ran on the rocks yesterday still in the same position. November 3rd. After breakfast, having arranged for a visit round the trenches with Panton, the Deputy Assistant Director of Medical Services, I go up to Division Headquarters at the top of our gully. We start off accompanied by Lord Howard de Walden, pass through the 88th Field Ambulance Camp, dip down onto the Beach Road, and, after a short way along, bear to the right onto Gibraltar Road. Instead of walking up along the Gibraltar Road, as has been the practice of most of us up to now, we bear to the right through the low-wooded country between Gibraltar Road and Hill 10. We cross the newly made line of trenches, with barbed wire thickly laid in front, passing a bombing school on our left. Turkish bullets fired at a high elevation just reach this point, dropping with spent velocity. As we walk through the almond trees just beyond, the guns of the two battleships bang out suddenly. We hear the great shells shrieking over our heads, and see them burst with violence over Burnt Hill on our right front. Passing the almond trees, we make a detour to the left, arriving in the open space which leads to 86th Brigade Headquarters. Panton stops here at an advanced dressing station, and while we wait for him, a few bullets sing overhead. But there is never much rifle fire in the daytime. We then dip down into C.C. Communication Trench and follow its windings to the line. We pass over one or two bridges, crossing large drains that have been dug to drain the trenches when the wet weather comes. We are warned by the formation of the irregular hills, nullahs, and ravines, and the great boulders of stone standing out of the ground, that at some time during the year rain falls in great quantities. What will our trenches be like on the low ground when that time does come? Salt Lake, on our left, gradually sinking under water, answers that question. We see shrapnel bursting low over that part of the line we are making for, and I have a desire to turn my coat-collar up. I always do when I am near Shells. Why, I don't know. We arrive at the support trench, in which are the Munsters and Dublin Fusiliers. I see a few men clustered together in the trench at a small entrance leading to a dugout. One comes out from the dugout and says, "'By jassus, the poor lad's gone.' A man had been hit by shrapnel and had just died after about twenty minutes. We continue on, and on arrival at the Essex Regiment, I inquire where Algie Wood had been hit. I am taken up a short trench which turns sharply to the left, coming to an abrupt end at a dugout, his dugout. I inquire how it happened, and am told that he was leaning up against the back of the trench immediately outside his dugout, with his pipe in his mouth looking at an aeroplane which was hovering over our line. Suddenly a bullet strikes him in the throat. He takes his pipe out of his mouth, makes a gesture of extreme annoyance with his arm, and mutters the words, "'Damn it!' Then he sinks back in the arms of his sergeant-major, who is standing near him, and, saying, "'I am finished, sergeant-major,' quietly goes west." struck by a chance bullet in a comparatively safe place cruel cruel luck at least algy wood one of the most gallant officers of that pick of divisions the twenty ninth should have been spared however he had the satisfaction of putting up his hard-earned distinguished service order ribbon a week or so ago we continue our way along trenches which instead of running more or less in regular lines zigzag in and out in sharp turns and corners which face the high hills on our left each corner protected by strong sandbag breastworks the reason for this is that these breastworks placed at short intervals in that part of the line where we are screen us from view of the enemy in his trenches high up on the ridge of hills which overlook the sea on our left of course we in our trenches up there also can overlook the turks in the trenches running through the low country in their territory which trenches also are punctuated at frequent short intervals by breastworks in consequence of the danger of being seen by turks on the hill our trenches on the lowland are very narrow and lord howard de walden causes great amusement to some Tommies sitting on the firestep by the remark These trenches were not built for a man with an extra-large tummy. We follow Panton, who is on his round of inspection of sumps, cesspits, cookhouses, and the general sanitation of the trenches. Myriads of flies which precede us on our way. When we halt, they all promptly settle in black patches on the sandbags and sides of trenches. When we continue our tour, they— rising immediately with a loud buzzing, lead the way for us. An inspection of the cookhouse of the Newfoundland Regiment is made. It is built in a small sunken ravine at the back of the support line. Panton and Frew, their medical officer, go to the end of the ravine. I wait at the end near entrance to the trench. A Newfoundlander says to me, "'Excuse me, sir,' BUT IN THE PLACE IN WHICH YOU ARE STANDING, OUR COOK WAS KILLED YESTERDAY BY A SNIPER FROM THE HILL. I AM RUDE ENOUGH TO FORGET TO THANK THE MAN. I SIMPLY TURNED ROUND ON MY HEEL, PRACTICALLY DIVING INTO THE TRENCH. BUT I SHOUTED THANKS TO HIM AS WE LEFT FIVE MINUTES AFTER. AFTER A SHORT WALK ALONG THE FRONT LINE, THE USUAL FRONT LINE, WITH MEN AT SHORT INTERVALS ON THE KEEN LOOKOUT THROUGH PERISCOPES, WE RETURN BY DECOMMUNICATION TRENCH, HALF AN HOUR'S WALK. We pass Gibraltar Hill and so over the gorse to Gibraltar Road, arriving at Division Headquarters on the hill, where I am given a topping lunch. It is a beautiful summer day, and the Turks are sending over sporting shots at the shipping. The battleships answer, so the enemy turn their guns on to them instead, and actually record two hits on the Prince George, which then manoeuvres for a fresh position. Then they get on to the supply ships again, which have to clear outside the boom further away from the end of the promontory. Suddenly, a good shot at long range gets a supply ship, which is loaded with hay, and quickly sets it on fire. Our battleships get very angry at this, but it is some time before they can silence the Turkish batteries. At sunset, the hay supply ship is still smoking, but the fire is well under control a new officer arrives named Hunt, a good fellow from Tipperary. Good omen, for though we are a long, long way from Tipperary, one from that immortal place has come to join us. November 4th. The ship that was set on fire yesterday lost practically all the hay in the forward hold. Consequently, for some time, our poor little Indian mules will be on half-rations. Destroyer has now broken her back and is a total wreck, waves breaking over her. "'Rain is beginning now. "'We had a few showers this morning. "'A little shelling in the morning, but the afternoon was quiet. "'Go up to brigade headquarters with the new transport officer, Hunt. "'Find conference on, so McLaughlin and Morris entertain us to tea. "'Have to make a detour through flat, wooded country, getting to and from headquarters.' "'on account of this beastly new battery. "'Very quiet this afternoon. "'No shelling and hardly any rifle fire. "'Hunt remarked, coming back, "'that it was a nice country walk "'and reminded him of his homestead in Tipperary. "'He has been at Blackheath "'for the last six months at headquarters "'at the Ranger's Lodge "'and left there only three weeks ago, "'so I like getting him to talk about Blackheath, "'which I knew so well.' I have been on this place so long now that a newcomer has only to mention about riding on a tram car or going into a cake shop when I am held thrilled with interest and pleasure. November 5th. A beautiful, cool summer day, shelled at ten this morning for quite an hour. The destroyer has now completely broken her back and her stern has disappeared. The Turks discovered the mishap, but they could not see that she is a wreck, as she is bows on to the Turkish position. Thinking, therefore, that the destroyer was still intact, though stuck on the ground, they attempted to finish her off, and for three hours shelled her. They only recorded two hits, however, and it was satisfactory to see old Turk wasting his ammunition. Today another old friend has gone. He is Way, the 86th supply officer, who has been here since April 25th without ever going sick. He felt rather dicky two days ago and was told to stay in his dugout, and today I find he has developed diphtheria badly. He tries not to go, but a doctor soon settles that. I shall now feel more lonely than ever, for we were great pals, and our walks to our respective headquarters were among the few pleasures that I could look forward to. When casualties occurred at his dump, he was always there to attend to the wounded, and as supply officer, the 86th Brigade will miss him. I wonder how many of the old twenty-ninth are left. Well, way is for Blighty, and good luck to him. But diphtheria is a nasty illness, and I hope he pulls through. November 6th. Walker has gone off permanently to hospital with jaundice. AND HUNT AND MYSELF ARE LEFT ON OUR OWN. BEAUTIFUL SUMMER DAY TODAY. TURK VERY QUIET AND HARDLY ANY SHELLING. SWIFTURE BACK. AND THE CANOPUS AND PRINCE GEORGE BUSY SHELLING TURKISH POSITIONS THIS AFTERNOON. NOVEMBER 7TH. ANOTHER BEAUTIFUL SUMMER DAY. Turks SHELLED OUR VALLEY AT TEN AND AGAIN AT THREE. NO DAMAGE, THOUGH SOME WERE UNCOMFORTABLY CLOSE TO US. Our ships and shore batteries fairly busy. Monitors busy at night. November 8th. A cool, lovely day. Flies are dying rapidly, the best news to record for a long time. Two new Army Service Corps officers arrive to join us, named Matthews and Elphinstone. Very few shells this morning, but they come very near our dugout this time. Cox of the Essex comes in for a chat, the only original officer now left of that regiment. I walk back with him to brigade headquarters, and Matthews comes with me. Walking across the flat space just leading to the 86th brigade headquarters, I point out to Matthews the lines of light brown earth running up the slopes of the hill on our left front. And he hardly believes me when I tell him one line is Turkish. Like all who newly arrive, he is surprised at the short walk "'from the beach to the line. "'Our batteries are dusting the Turkish line with shrapnel, "'and their batteries are retaliating. "'They make very good shooting on both sides, "'as, of course, they have all the ranges registered to a nicety. "'We call at both brigades and have tea at each. "'Coming away, Matthews tells me that he is of a retiring disposition "'and that he does not like being thrown suddenly into new society.' and that two tea-parties is more than his nerves can stand, more especially when a general is present at each. November ninth, Usual visit to brigade headquarters with Hunt, and, after, inspect the forward reserve rations at Commander Royal Engineer's Dump, men busy digging trenches back near beaches now, another beautiful cool summer day, cold at night, Turks busy shelling batteries and shrapneling trenches. THERE IS ONLY ONE POSSIBLE GAME FOR THE TURK TO PLAY, AND HE IS PLAYING IT WELL. THAT IS TO SAY, HE MUST KEEP US AT BAY AT ALL COSTS. THEREIN LIES HIS ONLY CHANCE. FOR ONCE WE CAN GET ACROSS THE PENINSULA to TOMATOES, HIS GAME IS UP, FOR WE CUT HIS MAIN LINE OF COMMUNICATIONS. SO HE SHELLS US CONTINUALLY TO KEEP US OCCUPIED. The shelling is so effective that elaborate dugouts have to be built. These are made as strong as possible, the inner walls being strengthened with sandbags, the roof, formed with strong crossbeams, on which rest first iron sheets or wire netting, then two layers of sandbags, then soil. These dugouts are perfectly secure against shrapnel or high-explosive splinters, but of course could not stand against a direct hit but that would not worry the occupants much, as it would be all over in a few minutes. Inside such houses we have lounges cut out of the earth and covered with sacks. Our furniture is rough and ready, and made on the spot. It is marvelous what can be done with any ordinary wooden box, if you know how to deal with it. Out of our wooden boxes, chairs and tables appear like magic, chairs with arms and adjustable backs strong tables, and various other bits of furniture. Some of them are really quite good, and show clearly the ingenuity of their makers. We also have candlesticks, recesses for books and toilet articles, all made from the same source. Fireplaces are made out of homemade bricks, for there is a good deal of clay on the peninsula. They are good fireplaces, too, complete with mantelpiece, bars, and hob. So... WE SIT ROUND OF AN EVENING, READING PERIODICALS A MONTH OLD, WITH THE SAME ZEST AND INTEREST AS WE READ THE LATEST EDITIONS AT HOME. BY THE PAPERS, ENGLAND SOUNDS DEPRESSING. SO WE WOULD RATHER BE HERE. WE DO KNOW THE TRUTH OF GALLIPOLI HERE. MAN LIKES TO KNOW WHAT HE IS UP AGAINST. SEVEN DIVISIONS AT THE START WOULD HAVE FIXED THIS JOB. NO SHIPS WOULD HAVE BEEN LOST and our little friend Bulgaria would have thought twice of coming in against us. All night outside we hear the crack-crack-crack of the rifles in the trenches. Worcesters did a good bit of work the other night, capturing a sniper's post 300 yards in front. Only two casualties over that little job. They expected more. Turks in front of the twenty-ninth have fairly got the wind up. We bomb and shell their nerves away. GENERAL CAYLEY SAYS HE IS QUITE HAPPY AND DOES NOT WANT TO GO TO SALONICA, AS HE IS LOOKING FORWARD TO SITTING ROUND HIS FIRE OF A WINTER'S NIGHT. GENERAL PERCIVAL SAYS, BOTHER GENERAL CAYLEY'S FIREPLACE. HE WANTS TO GO TO SALONICA AND GET A MOVE ON. AND SO, THEY LIVE THEIR LIVES, THESE MEN, LIVES FULL OF DANGER, YET JOKING ABOUT THEIR FIREPLACES. NOVEMBER 10TH. ANOTHER FAIRLY QUIET DAY. Ships firing a bit against Turkish batteries, which are sending back shrapnel. Take up Elphinstone to Brigade and have tea at the 86th. Have some excellent rock cakes made by their cook. General Cayley calls in. We walk round with him to the 88th. I get awfully fed up at times, but every time I see General Cayley he gives me a spurt for a few days. I had jaundice badly about two weeks ago, and they were going to send me off, and that meant England. I got a spurt, and soon felt fit again, and have never felt so well in all my life. Morris, machine-gun officer of the 88th, seriously ill with rheumatism. But he is trying to hang on. Destroyers and monitors make a practice of shelling the pimple from the Gulf of Soros now. Amusing marching destroyers. They fire, then emit a cloud of smoke, sail round behind it then fire again and so on old turk can't hit back shelling pimple much in fashion just now poor old turk fancy trying to get to sleep on the pimple with big guns throwing great shrieking shells at him all night november 11th lovely summer day our moving camp to ninth corps gully busy arranging the necessary digging Turk's very busy with shrapnel this morning around Chocolate Hill and to the left. Battleships very angry and fire back, making a fearful noise. Old Turk sticks at it, though. General Delisle, riding with Assistant Deputy Commander and Orderly, nearly gets hit. He takes too much risk and seems to have no nerves. November 12th. Getting rather cold now. Fleet firing heavily today, and Turks, as usual, busy with shrapnel. Sea Beach badly shelled. And 13th Division Supply Depot gets it badly. Several casualties. A year ago today I received my commission and joined the 13th Division. If I had not joined the 29th Division, I might have been on the Sea Beach today with the 13th Division. Go up to brigade with Elphinstone and see new Staff Captain Armstrong, Haddow is now with the 11th Division, and I am sorry he is gone. Stay till dusk. Turkish snipers always creep out at dusk. Bullets freely coming when we take our leave. Over the gorse outside the brigade headquarters, I say to Elphinstone, at this point at night I always walk fast. And he, this being his first experience, says, I am with you. Out of range we light our pipes, then a comfortable walk back in the moonlight finish-up work at the depot, dinner and a smoke, and to hell with a Kaiser. November 13th. It is getting very windy and cold, but day quite fine. Flies still worrying, but not nearly so bad as a few weeks back. No shelling from Turk. Ships firing on Turkish batteries which are badly shrapneling Chocolate Hill. Kitchener in neighborhood. Matthews leaves to be adjutant of train at Hellas and Hunt and I go out in his pinnace to see him off. See a bit choppy, and I, sitting on top of the engine room, nearly fall through the skylight into the engines. Horn arrives to take his place, has seen Kitchener at Mudros with a numerous staff. Staff Captain 86th Brigade comes to tea, show him over our new camp for winter, which is in course of preparation. It is going to be some camp. It breaks the monotony making this camp, guests for dinner, beautiful moonlight night, and very quiet. November 14th. A bit of a gale blowing. Another quiet day, absolutely no shelling. Kitchener arrives here at three o'clock with staff. Was up Brigade with Horn at the time, and so missed the show, but my sergeant told me about it. He landed at Little West Beach, walked through the main supply depot, and then past our depot, up Ninth Gully to the top of the hill, and had a good look round the positions. He was only here about two hours. Tommies came running up and stood in groups at attention, while their commissioned officers and officers saluted, and he passed along saluting gravely right and left, now and again stopping to look at some dugouts. There is now general satisfaction that Kitchener has been and seen for himself what things are really like here. No shelling of the beaches while he was on shore, BUT THE LOWLANDS WERE BEING SHRAPNELED. NOVEMBER 15TH QUIET MORNING. IN THE AFTERNOON THE TURKS PUT A DOZEN OF THE BEST OVER THE BEACH, BUT DID NO HARM. BIT OF A BATTLE ON CHOCOLATE HILL THIS AFTERNOON AT FIVE, AND RIFLE FIRE AND A GREAT DEAL OF shrapnel FOR HALF AN HOUR. OUR BATTLESHIPS FIRING HEAVILY AND MAKING A DEAFENING DIN. HEAVY THUNDERSTORMS AT EIGHT, WITH VIVID FORKED LIGHTNING AND RAIN. I suppose this is a foretaste of what is to come. The safety of the beaches has now greatly improved. West Beach and the beach adjacent are now joined by a deep cutting. A deep trench, starting at the main supply depot, runs down to West Beach, in which is laid a tramway used for carrying supplies from the piers to the depot. This is under cover, entirely hidden from the enemy by day. The earth taken from this cutting or deep trench has been thrown up in great mounds at the back of the two beaches, rendering them safe from high-explosive shells, though of course not from shrapnel. But whistling Rufus has not worried us since the late days of October, devoting his attention to the unfortunately situated sea beach on the other side of Baba. The road leading up on the higher ground to our division headquarters is now sunk, and the dugout earth, thrown up on the side facing the enemy, hides all transport by day entirely from his view. Since this has been done, this road has been almost entirely free from shrapnel. November sixteenth. Men are hard at work digging our new camp in Ninth Corps Gully. We move there when Ninth Corps headquarters move to the end of the promontory. Ninth Corps new headquarters should be entirely winterproof, even during the severest weather. They are also practically invulnerable, by reason of their position and the vast amount of labor that has been expended upon them. I myself saw sheds in sections being put bodily into rock excavated to receive them. There were communication trenches cut in the living rock, connecting dugout with dugout. Also, elaborate excavations in the rock form shell-proof living quarters, and, when necessary, Unlimited wood, iron, and sandbags have been lavishly used. The whole place is a perfect engineering achievement, the most wonderful nest of safety that the mind of man could conceive. How different are the conditions at Lala Baba, but three miles away, where the wretched hovels of the troops cluster as thickly as the cells in a honeycomb. No coping of iron or beams there. A man is lucky if he has as much as a blanket, or a waterproof sheet to stretch over his miserable hole in the ground. Not enough shelter to keep out the raindrops, let alone shrapnel. The system on which our camp is being modeled is the same as for all the other beach camps here. An effort is being made to house the men through the rigors of the winter storms, which no doubt will soon be upon us. Taking advantage of the sloping ground in the fold of the gully on the promontory, which increases in height as it extends inland towards the highland. Deep trenches are dug parallel to the lines of our trenches inshore. They are seven feet wide, with parapets and parados eight feet and six and a half feet high respectively. They should be roofed in by corrugated iron. Some only of them are, however. Corrugated iron is still a luxury here. Filled sandbags are then laid on the top, which should render them shrapnel-proof. As they generally run at right angles to the line of Turkish artillery fire, a high explosive shell would explode on the mound of earth thrown up in front of the parapet and not in the roof. Each trench is dug on lower ground than the one in front. The whole system is being organized by an able technical engineer officer who is hard at work from morning to night. His camp is taken as a model although in view of the enemy its safety against casual shelling such as we are daily subjected to has been demonstrated several times. Against a heavy bombardment, of course, no trenches are proof. Shrapnel bullets have spattered harmlessly on his sandbag roofs. High explosive shells bursting full in the middle of his camp have been caught by the mound of earth in front of the trench. Should the shell miss one line of trenches, it is caught by the mound of earth in front of the other line behind a direct hit on the roof except from a howitzer is almost impossible drains are cut about and around the trenches to catch the water from the forthcoming heavy rains and advantage is taken of the formation of the gullies to make one main drain into which smaller drains can run one has only to look at the great boulders of stone standing half in and half out of the earth all over the high ground of the peninsula and at the large medium and small gullies which are of all kinds of intricate geographical formations to realize that at some time of the year not only a series of ordinary rainfalls but raging deluges of water fall in all powerful torrents mercilessly driving all before them even great boulders of stone No trenches, no matter how well constructed, can withstand heavy, driving floods. Let engineers first study the formation of the land. Pause and reason a little, and they will see that all this labor will be lost, and their trenches full to the brim at the first heavy downfall. In dry weather, though, the system is excellent, and the men inside are very comfortable. The trenches are entered by steps from the road or path at either end, or from the terrace behind, between each trench. At night the men sleep in one row, side by side, their kits hung on the earth wall behind them. Quarters for non-commissioned officers are partitioned off by timber and sacking. By day their blankets are rolled up neatly, and the whole makes a roomy apartment. A cookhouse, constructed on the same principle, is built at the end of a series of trenches. Officers' dugouts are built nearby, Dug in the slope or behind protecting boulders. The whole, neat, orderly, and compact, affords remarkably good cover from shrapnel and high explosives. But for protection against weather, never. For protection against weather, I prefer the Delisle system of terraces, built on a steep slope in tiers, the whole practically a flight of very large steps. But of course, a steep slope is necessary. The men's quarters are simply built on each terrace. The back wall is cut out of earth, the roof of corrugated iron, supported by timbers and made shrapnel-proof, and the sides are built up of loose stones, tarpaulins, and timber. The hill on which such a system is built affords the necessary protection against shell-fire. It is, of course, weatherproof as it is simple to drain. Sea Beach and Lalababa across the bay get very badly shelled this afternoon and, in consequence, the battleships are hard at work, endeavoring to silence the Turkish batteries. Sounds of very heavy firing are heard from Hellas, probably monitors in action. November 17th. Very little shelling, hardly any our way. Today is very stormy, and, as the time goes on, the wind develops into a great gale. All landing of stores has to cease. GREAT WHITE WAVES DASH UP AGAINST OUR PIERS, AND AFTER IT IS OVER THERE WILL BE MUCH WORK FOR THE AUSTRALIAN BRIDGING SECTION. IN THE EVENING OUR FLIMSY SUMMER QUARTERS ARE COLD AND DRAFTY. THE OIL DRUM FIRE WON'T BURN, SO WE TURN IN EARLY, ELPHINSTONE AND Horn GOING TO THEIR DUGOUT UP THE RISE TO OUR LEFT. SUDDENLY, JUST AS WE ARE GETTING INTO BED, THE tarpaulin HALF OF OUR ROOF BLOWS ADRIFT hunt and i have a job to fasten it back in position once more the wind is shrieking outside a short while after horn and elphinstone come back asking for shelter for their bivouac has blown down altogether, and so we crowd them into our shelter for the rest of the night november eighteenth nineteenth and twentieth the usual daily visits to brigade headquarters forward reserve dumps and division headquarters I get exercise this way. Also to and fro on the beach, paying calls on friends among the many dugouts there. Some are excellent, especially those of the naval landing officers and camp commandant, built in the side of the high rocks. The field cashier has to be stung by me now and again on behalf of my staff captain to pay the men of brigade headquarters. His dugout is not in a very safe place. Once outside the dugout, "'Leaning against the wall of sandbags, "'talking to an Australian officer, "'I heard a shell coming clean for us. "'I had no time to get to cover. "'I saw men several yards away dive for cover. "'I watched the Australian. "'He did not duck, "'but I noticed that he gripped his pipe tightly with his teeth. "'I leaned back hard against the wall behind me, "'and the beastly thing passed low over our heads "'and burst in the sea. "'I said to him, I wanted to duck, but as you didn't, I didn't. And he replied, Same here, son. Gale has been blowing hard the last three days, the navy having great difficulty in landing stores, etc. But tonight, the night of the twentieth, the wind is dying down, hardly any shelling at all now, except inland. Our flimsy bivouac very drafty and cold. IT IS HARD WORK KEEPING OUR ACCOUNTS AND DOING OUR OFFICE WORK. NOVEMBER 22ND Gale blowing hard now, and wind much colder, hard at work building our new camp. Hunt falls ill and has to go to bed, but trying to stick it out. Turk's very quiet. We are woke up at twelve midnight by a dugout on fire, and all turn out to get the fire under and prevent it spreading in the strong wind to neighboring dugouts. WE CURSE HEARTILY, BUT MANAGE TO PUT THE FIRE OUT IN HALF AN HOUR. NO ONE IS HURT. NOVEMBER twenty-third, WHEN QUIETING DOWN THANK GOODNESS, WE PULL DOWN OUR SUMMER RESIDENCE IN WHICH WE HAD LIVED FOR CLOSE ON THREE MONTHS. IN A SHORT WHILE, NOT A SIGN OF IT IS LEFT, AND WE ARE HARD AT WORK SHIFTING THE WHOLE CAMP INTO OUR NEW QUARTERS IN THE LATE NINTH Corps GULLY. EACH REGIMENT'S QUARTERMASTER'S STAFF, and a few regimental transport details and our Army Service Corps supply details move with us. Also, the two brigade post offices. Our camp is not properly finished, but we are all glad to be in it, for it is much warmer at night in our dugouts. November 24th. The weather is now much more settled. It was making us all very anxious, as landing stores was very difficult for the Navy. Brigade Headquarters Country Walk again but life very monotonous. Battleships now and again pop off. A little shelling from the Turk, but not half a dozen all day. Hard at work on new camp. November 25th. Hunt very seedy, so I send him to field ambulance. At night hear a rumor that the evacuation of Suvla Bay has been decided on. Go down on beach in the evening to see about arrangements for getting off, but am led to believe it is only baggage for a division which is leaving. End of section 19